You're listening to audio from Praxis Church Kelowna. Praxis is a new church plant that exists to follow Jesus and make him known. If you're interested in finding out more or joining us in person, go to praxischurch.ca. Our reading comes from Matthew 7, verse 28 to 29, and it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Good to have you here with us. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here at Praxis. Um, yeah, great to have you. As mentioned, we're going to be wrapping up Sermon on the Mount this morning. This has been a 22-week journey. It's been great. It's been challenging. I really loved it. We're, we're going to begin a new series next week working through First Timothy, which I'm, I'm very excited about. I think it's very timely for us as a church plant, um, developing structures, systems. Really, it's a, it's a letter that is a set of instructions to the church describing how it should function, what it should be about, and all the details in between. It's going to be a fantastic series. Um, I think it will be challenging as well. Just the Sermon on the Mount has been a challenging series, so I want to encourage you to come back for that. We have a new notebook for that coming next week as well. But we're going to, we're, as we transition into a new series, transition kind of into the summer months as well. I know it doesn't feel like summer out there today. And officially it isn't until what, like this 22nd or something. But it's normally summer here in the Okanagan. It's not this year. Um, over the summer months, I know a lot of you, you're out of town, you're back from wherever you came from, a variety of things are going on. So we've had three gatherings going since Easter. Um, we had to do that in order to fit everyone into this building, but I know many are going to be traveling, checking things out, and in order to provide a little bit of space for our teams to restructure, build some trellis, um, kind of equip ourselves to get ready for, for fall and all that's coming there. We're actually going to go back to the 9 and the 11 for the summer months. Many families, I know there's some in here who you came to us by way of the 4 p.m. We've seen um, a dozen, couple dozen different people um, call Praxis home as a result of that 4 p.m. service. So it's important. It's a mission-critical item that we plan on picking back up again in September. But just by no, way of note, if you're planning on coming to the 4 p.m., that won't be available next week. Um, as we do that, too, we're going to open up some opportunities to engage in some different ways. So when our serve team's not here, we have a number of different events coming this summer. Family events at the beach, rock climbing, jogging, whatever kind of your shtick is. We, we've got some midweek groups. We've got a variety of different events going on this summer. That's all up on the web, and um, Colin's going to tell you more about it on the back end. But until then, grab your Bibles. We're going to conclude the Sermon on the Mount, our 22-week journey. And... Um, you can open it to Matthew 7. I don't know. We're going to bounce around a little bit. Um, let me first open us in a word of prayer, though. Father, we thank you for your word as we've just been singing. You're great and you're worthy. Our lives have been ransomed and um, we're, we're new creations because of Christ, because of the work on the cross. And, and you've redeemed us for something. You, we're a people to be set apart we're called to become your disciples, and we want, to, we want to be instructed and trained. And so we pray as we open the word up, Holy Spirit, you would come and apply it to our hearts. Do that work that I can't do. Holy Spirit, breathe life into um, this time now as we <coughs> examine the words and close up this Sermon on the Mount. We pray it in the great name of Jesus. Amen. So yeah, if you're new or haven't been with us, we've, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount since the turn of the new year. 
It is three chapters in Matthew's gospel that contains the largest condensation, kind of the um, just condensed teaching of Jesus that we see in the New Testament. It's a description for a whole new way of life, instruction on what it looks like to live as citizens of a new kingdom. Um, One author described it. I liked it. He described it this way. The king of the kingdom of heaven educating his servants on the legislation of heaven. It's been called Jesus' manifesto, the Magna Carta of Christianity, a number of different titles, but this is the core of what it means to follow Jesus right here. Um, This teaching that we've been working through, it goes against the grain of our culture. It goes against the grain of kind of our natural um, dispositions and way of life. And I I warned us at the beginning of the series, it's going to be a difficult one. It's going to cut us. And if you've been with us, I suspect it has. It certainly has me. It's challenging. It's just like pure Jesus on tap. It's been great, and it's given a lot of life. Um, If you were with us at the beginning, you remember it opened up Matthew 5, It said great crowds had been following Jesus all around the region. And he goes up on the mountain. I'll just read chapter 5, verse 1. It says, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. We've talked about this a bunch. Jesus ditched the crowds. He wasn't after crowds. He went up the mountain, and his disciples came to him. He was after disciples. He went up the mountain to teach his disciples, which is really what it means to be a disciple. He goes up there, though. um, Throughout the scripture, mountaintops are places of encounter with God. Just as Moses went up the mountain to give instruction to the people of God, Jesus goes up the mountain to give instruction to the people of God. He went up the mountain, it says, and disciples came to him. Disciple, it means learner. It's what it means. It's to be an apprentice of a way. So just as you would apprentice to learn the way of plumbing, you're apprenticing under Jesus to learn his way, his instruction, and this is the core of it, the Sermon on the Mount. This word, uh, disciple, learner, um, talmudim, or or apprentice, a lot of different ways we've described it throughout the series. We see it 269 times in the New Testament used. We only see the word Christian used three times. To be a Christian is to be an apprentice. The past 22 weeks, we've been up the mountain with Jesus, just sitting under the fire hose of his instruction. But now as we descend down the mountain, the challenge becomes to live our lives in light of what Jesus taught us. This is what it means to be a disciple, to be someone who who lives this out. This is the goal of apprenticeship to Jesus, is that we would put his words, turn his words into works that what we believe would result in right action. This is why we named this church Praxis. Praxis means right beliefs lived out in a right way. And this is why we called it this, because it's the goal of an, to be of apprenticeship to Jesus, is, is that what we believe upstairs would unpack downstairs in the living room of our lives, that our whole life would embody the teachings of Christ. Jesus called disciples. He didn't say, come have a personal relationship with me. He didn't say, come hang with me. He said, follow me. And follow me suggests a goal. It suggests we're going towards something. It also, it it implies submission. We're following behind him. We're not leading. We're not tagging Jesus in in the back seat for wherever we're heading. We're changing course and we're following him. This is what it means to be a Christian. A A few things. To be a Christian means 
that we believe Jesus is God and Savior. Both of those things, not just Savior, God and Savior. In fact, he can't be your Savior if he isn't God. It means that we trust in him for salvation. We stop thinking that anything we're doing is earning that right standing before God. Instead, we just trust him. But at the core of that and, and the necessary outworking of that is that we follow him as Lord. And this sermon, it showed us this. The definitive marker of a disciple of Jesus is not the ability to spout spiritual jargon. It's not that you know all of the lyrics to the songs that you get the tingles on your arms when you put your hands up. That's not the mark of a disciple. The mark of a disciple is that we follow him. And this sermon has showed us that if we're going to follow Jesus, it comes with a cost. It comes with a cost because discipleship comes with a cross. It comes with a cost because to be a disciple of Jesus is to put on a cross. Jesus said this in Matthew 16. He said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. But whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. To follow Jesus is to pick up a cross. And we need to remember in the first century mind who he's speaking this to, what it meant to take up a cross. To, to take up a cross was to put a cross on your, was to have a cross put on your back to be paraded through the city very publicly on your way to a very public death. And when Jesus calls us to take up a cross, it's to do the same thing, to publicly put this on, to put his teaching on. And it's, it's what he likens it to crucifying ourselves. Dying to the desires of this flesh, the way of this flesh, and instead putting his on. And it's going to be public. Just as the cross involved public shame then, it will probably involve public shame now. Just as being nailed to a cross was painful then, putting on the way of Jesus will be painful now. And, and he calls us to willfully do it, to pick up your cross. And it, that's interesting, and I could nerd out here for a while, but... Jesus willfully put on a cross. He willfully did it. At any point, he could have stopped it. He could have called legions of angels. At one point, Jesus just says his name, and the people in the room fall to the floor. With his word, he could destroy them. But he willfully went to the cross. And this will be a willful action for us as well. Dying will be a willful action if we're to follow Christ. Luke 14, it says, or Jesus says, whoever doesn't bear his own cross and come after me cannot be his disciple. The way of discipleship is the way of the cross. However, modern Christianity often gets twisted and kind of rewritten as the antidote to suffering, trial, to, to pain. It's like the antidote to actually nailing up your flesh. We've made Jesus a plug-in that gives us all the desires of our flesh. And in modifying the message, we talked about this a few weeks ago, we modify the destination. Now, there's so many people today and throughout history who think Jesus needs a new publicist. He needs a new marketing strategy to win people. You know? so, so they're chopping the message of Jesus apart and modifying it. But having spent, if you've been with us, these 22 weeks in the Sermon on the Mount, we've been reminded that the path that he calls us to is a narrow one. It's an uphill one. It's a painful one, and it's one that we walk with the cross, but we need to remember, too, where it leads. It leads to glory. In, um, in 1913, 
a man named Ernest Shackleton um, led an expedition to Antarctica. He led a few of them and ended up dying of a heart attack on his way home from one. Um, was reading this story this week. But he, he called people with this ad saying, he wanted men for a hazardous journey with small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger. Safe return is doubtful, but honor and recognition will be there in case of success. That's the actual ad. Um, 5,000 men applied for this for 26 spots. As I thought about this, it was like comparing this to the call of Jesus in the way of the cross. Like, who would do this? Who would sign up for that? And this is on like old ghetto ships too. A few years ago, um, you'll remember Mars One, maybe you will, making an expedition to Mars. One-way trip, calling for people to apply to go repopulate. I keep saying that. It's not repopulating Mars. Um, populating. And maybe some of you are like, they are populating. Um, no, the, to go and populate Mars. They had um, 10,000 applicants sign up for this one-way journey to Mars. They whittled it down to 1,000, then eventually 100, and then it didn't end up going. I think it was a, just a big um, marketing scam. But um, still, crazy that people are signing up for these ludicrous journeys. And I, as I thought about these, I'm like, who would do it? There's a few things, like big carrots that dangle in front there. I think some people are attracted to the adventure. This, we get to go do something wild, crazy, new frontiers. There's some, some of that written in the core of us. It's certainly written in the core of me. Um, we want to go and pioneer and be cartographers and chart new lands. But there's this promise of honor as well, which I think is written right at the core of who we are. We long for that. The thing is, is we look for these in pathetically lesser places. Jesus calls us on a journey to a place far more harrowing than Antarctica. Jesus calls us to something far more grandiose than, re or than populating Mars. He calls us to become citizens of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. This is his call. Become citizens of the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Be my foreign ambassadors. And like Shackleton's expedition to Antarctica and Mars One's journey to space, the journey has a cost. Luke says this. Jesus says, which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when you've laid a foundation and you're not able to finish, all who see it will begin to mock him, saying, this man to begin to build and he wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if he can't, while well, the other king is yet far off, he should send a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So, therefore, in light of this, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The Sermon on the Mount that we've been going through is an invitation to a journey. But in order to embark on it, we need to leave one way of life and take up another. Just as the people who entered Shackleton's ship could not remain citizens of New York, they had to enter on a ship. Just as those who were citizens of Canada or the US or any other nation would no longer get to remain on Earth and go to Mars, Jesus requires that we leave behind an old way of life in order to follow him. He 
calls us to a new way of responding to anger, a new way of responding to lust, a new way of thinking of marriage, a new way of dealing with enemies, a new way of helping those less fortunate, a new way of storing up treasures, a new way of dealing with our anxieties. It's all been in here. One is a wide gate. He calls us to leave the old path and come on to the narrow one. And he says at the end of it, there's a reward far greater than getting to be the first person to Antarctica or the first person on Mars. Jesus promises this. He says, truly, I say to you, in this new world, this new kingdom, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who followed me will also sit on thrones. Everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. There's a cost to following Jesus, but there's a reward as well. But the message of Christianity is this eternal life comes through the death on or comes through death on a cross. It's what Jesus had to pay, and it's what we will have to pay if we are to walk on this way as well. It costs something. And we've asked this a lot throughout the series, but I just want to ask us again, Praxis, what does it cost you? It costs something. Following Jesus has a cost. What does it cost you? As we think back over this sermon, and I'd encourage you, go and read this lots. Put this in your phone once a month. It takes 13 minutes to read the Sermon on the Mount. I timed it. 13 minutes a month. Go back. Read this central teaching of Jesus. It's this teaching that changed the world. It's this teaching that's coming up throughout the scripture over and over and over. It's central to all of his teaching. Go and read it and then ask yourself, are you a disciple of this way or are you a disciple of some other way? We need to keep coming back to this. Jesus came and and he made a way. He made a way for us to be right with God. He walked a path that involved the cross and he invites us to follow behind him on this as well. There's many teachers who, who teach many paths. And so it, it is worth asking and spending a couple minutes here just to go, why follow this one? What makes Jesus different from other teachers? Which makes his path different from different paths? There are many voices proclaiming many paths. Why follow Jesus? What makes him different? And one of the markers and what we're going to look at as we close this this. Um, Um, this section of scripture out today is um, this, is Jesus spoke very differently than anyone else, before or after. I'm going to read the last two verses again. We've heard them, but it says, when Jesus finished these sayings, these three chapters that we've been examining for 22 weeks, when he finished these, the crowds were astonished, for he was teaching as one who had authority. Now, a lot of people, have, they've said a lot of things. Lots of people have prescribed ways of life. They've got philosophies, grandiose promises. The scribes in Jesus' time, they had a whole set of teaching as well. Philosophers throughout the ages have come with different sets of, of teaching. But when Jesus speaks here, it's very different. It says he speaks as one who had Authority. We see this start in the very beginning in the Beatitudes. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
very bold statement, very definitive statement. He's claiming to declare who he can dole out the kingdom of heaven to. Reading on, Matthew 5, 20, in the Beatitudes, he said, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Very authoritative. He's saying, I decide who comes in. I can tell you who gets into heaven and who doesn't. 521, just the next verse, he says, you've heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. What we see Jesus doing here, he's quoting Moses. You have heard that it was said. That's Moses. He takes Moses, he takes the Ten Commandments and says, you heard this, I say to you this. He speaks over the Ten Commandments. That's authority. Matthew 5.31, he comes in into the teaching and instruction of the scribes and the whole religious system and what they taught about divorce. He says, you've heard it said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife makes her commit adultery, except on the grounds of sexual immorality where she's already committed adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. He takes this understood teaching, which is pretty much what the church teaches today, and he ups the ante like 12 notches. He speaks with authority. The authority of most teachers comes um, from their ability to remember and impart traditions, teachings of others before them. Um, just to kind of unpack this idea a little bit for you. Most teachers, you know, they'll speak with authority, but they'll say, Kant said this. Picasso taught this. Christians do this too. Martin Luther said this. Constantine, or Augustine, not Constantine, yikes, but um, <laughs> um, Augustine taught this. They're borrowing authority. It's leveraging authority. The scribes of Jesus' time, they were doing this too. They're leveraging the authority of the Old Testament in different written scriptures. This is what it says. This is how you should do it. It's kind of like my daughter Temperance. If she went out into the yard and said, Evie, come inside. Evangeline is not required to obey temperance. She's required to obey me, though. And so when temperance comes wielding my words, Evangeline has to listen. Why? Because she's borrowing authority. This is how many speak, with borrowed authority. But Jesus speaks very differently. He's not borrowing authority. He's not leveraging authority his authority is not something he learned or earned. It's something that is his. Jesus doesn't teach with derivative authority. He teaches with definitive authority. His authority resides in himself. Every declaration that we've seen Jesus make here is due to the fact that he has authority because of who he is. He's God in the flesh. He's the one who created everything, who scripture says upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who will judge everything. He has every right to say these things to us. In Matthew, we read this. Jesus say, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will forgive you. Look at that authority he speaks with. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. He claims authority over how we spend our money. Judge not that you may not be judged. He's commanding our, our actions here. 
Ask and it will be given. He speaks with authority. Many today who don't follow Jesus, they, they would call Jesus a good moral teacher. Um, Gandhi called Jesus a good moral teacher. I brought him up earlier in the, the series. I said I'd never quote him again, so I'm not going to quote him right now. But he bootlegged Jesus. He read the Sermon on the Mount, and he built all of his philosophy of nonviolence around Jesus' instruction. If you go far enough, you can actually you can find him quoting it as well. Um, but he thought Jesus was a good moral teacher. But the thing is, is Jesus wasn't offering good ethical suggestions. He spoke with authority. He was speaking as God. He did not claim to be a moral teacher. They did not kill Jesus for being a good moral teacher. They killed him because he claimed to be absolutely authoritative. He claimed to be God, to have the authority of God. That's why he was nailed to a cross. He's not a good moral teacher. He claimed to be Lord. And this leads us into what some have called the great trilemma. It's more than a dilemma. It's a trilemma. Let me explain it. Um, a trilemma here is that Jesus is, he either willingly deceived mankind. He just lied about who he was. He spoke with an authority far exceeding what he ever should have. Or he was self-deceived, kind of a loony, and he thought he was God, and he was fully convinced himself, so he spoke with that authority. Or he's Lord, He's divine. C.S. Lewis, a couple hundred years after um, theologians were wrestling through this trilemma, he worded it this way. He said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And we need to wrestle with this because he's not a moral teacher. These are not platitudes. These are commands. Jesus claims lordship over everything, every aspect of our lives, our finances, our sexuality, our marriage, everything. If we are his, if we're to be his disciples, it's to be someone who's given the lordship of their life over to another. If we are his disciples, we ought to walk in the way he, he commanded here. 1 Corinthians 6, it says, we are not our own. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, we're to glorify God in our bodies. And this is a painful path to walk. We've seen this for the last five months. This is painful. To nail the lordship of our life to a cross is painful, but it's the way of Jesus. Additionally, it's not even something we can pull off on our own. You can't nail yourself to a cross. You don't have enough hands. You need brothers and sisters to do this with you. You cannot be a Christian apart from the Christian church. We need the church. We need brothers and sisters because we can't nail up that other hand. It's hard work. And if Jesus isn't who he said he was, then you should walk a different path. You should walk a different path. But if Jesus is who he said he was, then we must walk in this way. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Astonished. I love one translation said they're astonished and overwhelmed. Uh, the Greek word here, um, it's, it means struck with amazement. It's kind of like bewildered. It's probably like we would go like mind blown. 
they're perplexed. Their minds were blown because he claims to tell them how to live. He says he determines who enters heaven and who doesn't, and he asserts divinity. They were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching as someone who had authority. This word authority in the Greek, it means um, someone um, who has the right and power to rule and govern. They have the right and the ability to rule and govern. And Actually, if you pick up Matthew's gospel, and I'd encourage you to do this this week, just keep heading right in it, what you'll see is that Jesus' authority actually just gets put on display from this point forward. Jesus claims authority, and then Matthew proceeds to just show it to us. So look at nine verses into chapter eight, the very next verse. Um, what we see is a centurion come up to Jesus, say, heal my daughter. And, and Jesus is like, okay, I'll come with you. He's like, you don't need to come with me. I'm a ruler. I tell people what to do. You just say the word. And Jesus healed the daughter. You remember that story? If not, go and read it. But what we see is the authority of Jesus over sickness. Then Jesus hops in a boat because the crowds are following him. Again, he likes to get away from the crowds. He's not after crowds, but disciples. He heads across the lake. Big storm ensues. He's sleeping in the boat. Remember what happens? They wake him up. Jesus, wake up. There's a crazy storm. And he stands up and he just says, be still. He has authority over the natural world. Then he comes, and on the other side of the water, remember what was there, two demon-possessed men, he casts the demons out into the herd of pigs. He has authority over the spiritual world. Then he heals a paralytic and says, your sins are forgiven. He has authority over forgiveness of sins. Then he finds a little girl who's dead, and he goes up to her and says, come back to life. He has authority over giving life. All authority is his. All of it. This is what Matthew's showing us. Matthew um, 5 to 7 are Jesus making authoritative statements about our lives. And then Matthew 8 to 28 is Matthew putting Jesus on display and saying, this is one who deserves all authority. He's not a fraudster. He's not self-deluded. He's Lord. This is one giant presentation of the lordship of a Christ, of, of the authority of Jesus. And with this authority, what we see Jesus doing in the Sermon on the Mount, in the Gospel of Matthew, is three things. One, he confronts our way of living. He comes and says, there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. He, he gives us a new way, a way to eternal life. He sets a narrow gate before us. He calls us to a radical way of living and this confrontation is an ongoing, never-ending process in the Christian life. It's a daily decision that we must engage in. With this authority that Matthew shows Jesus having, he does a second thing, though. He challenges the lordship of our life. He says, if you're going to follow me, you are not lord of your life anymore. I am. And so we need to keep continually asking ourselves, am I acting as if Jesus is Lord or as if I am? Am I spending my money as if Jesus is Lord or I am? Am I expressing my sexuality as a way that I'm Lord or Jesus is Lord? Am I conducting my career as if Jesus is Lord or I am Lord? Do everything, he demands lordship over every area of our lives. And so we need to keep asking, 
does my life reflect the fact that I'm under the lordship of another, or does my life reflect the fact that I'm Lord? Jesus claims lordship over every single aspect of your life. Third thing that Matthew's showing us, though, is that with this authority that Jesus claims, he commands us, he commissions us to action. He tells us our lives have a purpose. He claims lordship over every sphere. There is no sovereign but him. He claims lordship over every other authority. And he tells us to go into every sphere as his ambassadors. We saw that in the Sermon on the Mount. We're to be the salt and the light. We are to be the light that exposes darkness, the salt that is the preservative in society. This is what we exist for. If he's our Lord, we are to go extend his lordship, unpack his lordship might be a better way to phrase it. Unpack his rule and dominion in every facet of society. And so Matthew opens his gospel with this presentation of Jesus telling us how we're to live, and he closes it out very similarly. So if you have your Bible open, flip all the way to the right in Matthew. Right at the end, Matthew 28, verse 18, we see this. Jesus saying this. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. He commands us to go because he's Lord. It's all mine. I'm Lord over you. I have a mission for you. You are to go and do this, and I'm going to be with you as you do it. He says, I'll be with you even to the end of the age. So is he with us now? Yes. He's, he's there to empower us. He commands us to go to all nations because all nations are his. There's no sovereign but Christ. There's no nation of India. There's no country of Canada. It's Christ's. We're to go to the ones who deny him, to the ones who persecute, to the ones who hate him, to the ones who've not yet heard. We're to go and declare the teaching of Christ. What does he say we're to go and do? Go and teach them to observe what I've commanded you. He claims lordship over our life. Then as our Lord, he says, go and tell other people that I'm Lord over them and that they're to obey me. Matthew 24, or sorry, on Proverbs 24, um, it says that we're to rescue those who are being taken away to death. And we are to hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. This is what it says they're doing. They're, they're being taken away to death. Those who you know who are not following Christ. Jesus said this. There's two paths. If I'm not their Lord and they're not on my path, where they're going is they're being taken away to death. So we are, it says, to hold back those who are stumbling to slaughter. Actually, the very next verse, Proverbs 24, 12, it says, Behold, if you say, we didn't know this, does not he who sees our hearts know? 
Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel 33 also picks up on this message, and it says that you and I are the messengers for this culture, for our world, for our spheres of influence. And that our job, the messenger, the watchman's job is to declare the gospel. And if people don't respond, their blood's on themselves. But if we fail to declare it, the blood is on us. Why? Because he's commanded us, go, proclaim, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. I am their Lord. Tell them to bow the knee to me. All of humanity is stumbling to slaughter. And Jesus has told us in his word that there's one God. There's not many. There's no other way. There's one God, and there's one mediator between that God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he gave his life as a ransom for all. We're to go and tell people this good news. Remember a few weeks ago, um, I, I used the, um, I referenced Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if anyone went and read that since. I know some of you have read it before. But if you remember or you're familiar with the story at all, it starts with this man named Pilgrim living in the city of destruction. And he learns of the celestial city and the way because a man named Evangelist comes and tells him. He says, the city you're living in is headed for destruction. And now this man named Evangelist, he told many people. Many didn't listen, but some did. Christian in the story, he did. And so as we go, we will encounter opposition. There's those who will not listen, but we've also been told some will. And we're going to be judged whether or not we obey Christ in this command to tell other people of the, the, the way that he's commanded us. For those who are Christ's, our job is to tell others about this. We, we taught on this way back in the summer, um, last year, right as we launched, actually just the weeks before we launched, we talked about our mission statement, which here at Praxis is this. It's to know Jesus and to make him known. This is what we exist for. Not just as a church, this is what we exist for as Christians. Your job is to walk in the way of Christ and know him. And it's to make him known. This is what we are here for. As a church, we're possessed with this vision of seeing thousands come to faith. Churches planted throughout this valley. There's towns where there is no gospel proclamation anymore, and that's not okay. We need to spend our lives, our money, our energy, our talent to bring change to that. This is where he's placed us. But he's placed you somewhere too. In a workplace, in a townhouse complex, on a street. And we can't forget what we're there for. We're there to tell other people about the lordship of Christ. And so I want to close this with these two questions. We close every sermon this way, but we're going to close the series really capstoned with these two questions, which is this. Ask yourself, am I a disciple of Jesus' way or another way? Am I a disciple of Jesus or another way? Is he Lord or am I? Secondly, especially as we head into summer and our rhythms change and we set ourselves up to be able to engage with the city in different ways, ask yourself, who do you know that you can share the way of Jesus with? This is what we exist for, church. Father, we thank you for your word. 
We thank you for sending some to come and tell us about the, the two ways, the fact that we were living on a path of destruction. We thank you that you, didn't, you weren't contented to just leave those who had sinned against you, had grieved your heart. You didn't leave us in destruction. You sent your son to stand in our place, to take the consequence we deserved and give us the righteous reward that we did not. You opened a new and living way through the veil, as Hebrews says. You've opened a narrow gate, and we know the path is hard, but we know your Holy Spirit as well indwells us and empowers us to walk that path. And we trust that just as you said in Matthew 28, that you will be with us to the end of the age, that your Holy Spirit is in us, empowering us, gifting us. And would you compel us to go and tell more? For the sake of your great name, we pray for thousands to come to faith in this valley. Pray that this summer, for every single one of us, we'd have the pleasure not just of sharing the good news of Christ with someone, but seeing someone respond to it as well. We know there is one mediator between God and man and Jesus. All glory and honor and praise is due to you. You are new. You are our new and living way. And we choose now to praise you as people who've been rescued and redeemed from Satan from the way of death. Help us to remember where you've called us from and continue to fill our vision with where you're taking us to. In your great name we pray, amen.